We will continue our exposition of the book of Colossians today, um, starting in the greeting of Paul to the Colossians, the church at Colossae. And he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter. We thank you for the life of Paul and how you used him to advance your gospel and to bring your gospel to this church even though he did not go there himself. You used him. And you're still using his writings this day in our lives and the lives of your people around this world. And you will continue to use him and your word. Please use me this morning as I preach your word. Pray that my words would be your words and that they would go forth and impact your people, for your glory. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Now, as we read this uh, short introduction, it's just two verses, and uh, we, we read it, this salutation that, that Paul wrote to the believers at Colossae as he b- begins his letter. And, and there's some, some interesting um, observations that, that we should make. And first is that, you know, in general, Paul didn't, write letters the way um, we do in our modern American culture, and, and, and nor did any of the other New Testament um, writers or um, even ancient authors. Um, you know, we, we begin our letters by addressing the person we write to, dear Sally or, or dear John or to whom it may concern. Um, and then usually we wait until the end to identify ourselves as the writer um, but Paul and the other New Testament writers and many ancient authors, they, they would identify themselves in the beginning and, and, then, and then provide any other introductory matters or um, salutations. Um, so that, that's our first observation. Our, our second observation is that we, we see a comparison in the way Paul introduces his letter here to the Colossians as he does in his other letters. And, and you can see this... Um, for example, in, in 1 Corinthians, and, and you can follow along with me um, from 1 Corinthians on through the other uh, letters of Paul, and if you look at the beginning of, of the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, uh, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all the all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see those two phrases, by the will of God and then grace to you and peace. And then in 2 Corinthians, it's similar. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. To the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Likewise in Galatians, which is a a little bit different, but you see the same similarities. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Also in Ephesians, very similar, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And here's, here's an interesting um, little difference. Um, in his letters to, to Timothy, in 1 Timothy, there, there, there's a, a slight difference. I wonder if you can notice it. Um, 1 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of our God and Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Likewise, in 2 Timothy, he, he, he writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And, and this is the, the third observation um, concerning this introduction that, that we should make, that in nearly every one of Paul's letters, he greets the recipients with a similar, if not the exact same phrase, grace to you and peace. But if you notice the difference in, in Timothy, he adds mercy. And probably because Timothy needed that mercy being um, facing all the struggles of pastoral ministry. Um, but more importantly, um, Paul begins um, his letters by stating his office and calling as an apostle. And then emphasizes that his position in ministry is by the will of God. It's not by his own will. It's not because of his own decision or his own wisdom or his own um, ambitions. But it's by the will of God. And it, it's, it's not just that Paul's apostleship is by the will of God, but by way of extension, the impact of his ministry upon the Colossian church, and now through his writing, which could be characterized by his greeting, grace to you and peace from God the Father, that is also by the will of God. And so, as my title says, this message is about the will of God, by the will of God, that Paul and his apostleship and his ministry and everything that, that had flowed through him to the people he ministered to, the gospel, was by the will of God. Um, John Calvin, in his commentary, he, he comments on this, um, this introduction by saying, he premises that he is an apostle of Christ set apart by the will of God. From this it followed that he did not act rashly in writing to persons that were not known by him, inasmuch as he was discharging an embassy with which God had entrusted him. For he was not bound to one church merely, but his apostleship extended to all. So it's not just that his apostleship was by the will of God, but his ministry as well. And not only the, his ministry, but the effects of his ministry, the words that he preached, the words that he wrote, um, those interpersonal um, times of counseling and service, um, that was also by the will of God. And, and you could take that even further, and by extension, um, his writings that we now glean from are by the will of God. And, and, and in considering Paul's greeting here and in his introduction, we, we see three aspects concerning the will of God in the church at Colossae. And, and first and foremost, the first aspect concerning the will of God is the will of God and the Apostle Paul. The will of God and the Apostle Paul. And, and in looking at Paul's life, there are three areas in which we can clearly see the will of God directing him. First and foremost, Paul's conversion and commission. And we think of Paul, and we, as many of us have read about the life of Paul and, and in, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 9, and, and then even in his testimony and other of his writings, we, we know about his former life as a Pharisee. Paul's former life as a Pharisee, that he persecuted the, the church. And not only did he persecute the church, but um, he... up. Until that point, he strived with, with all his might and his learning to um, become zealous for the law, to become, be, become a preeminent uh, Pharisee and teacher of the law. Um, he wasn't slack 
He, he strove hard. He, he worked harder than any of them. Um, as he would later say about the apostles, that, that, that diligence, that work ethic from his life as a Pharisee carried on at, into his life as an apostle. But during his time as a Pharisee, and, and we can read about this, in Philippians chapter 3, and just turn over, it's probably just one page over, um, Philippians chapter 3, and he says in, in verses um, 4 to 7, he's talking about um, confidence in the flesh. And he, he's kind of um, using himself as a comparison against those who are boasting in their deeds. And he says, though... I myself has, have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And, and, and Paul was, he had the heritage. He had the pedigree. And not only did he have the heritage and the pedigree, but he studied under Gamaliel, um, the premier teacher at that time in Judaism. It, it was almost, um, I like to think of him as the Yoda of his day, <laughs> the, 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 that, that, that sage. The, he, he was the guy that if you wanted to study under... So Paul, everything was lining up for Paul as a Pharisee. Uh, he, he had everything going for him until he met Christ. Until he met Christ and, and, and his dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus. And, and we can read about that in Acts chapter 9, but I, I want you to turn to a... a, a to hear about his own testimony later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 26. And you can turn there to Acts chapter 26. As, as Paul is in house arrest, this is um, shortly after his arrest, and, and he's there before King Agrippa. This was before he would be sent off to Rome. And, and he's, he's testifying. He, he's giving a defense of the charges that are placed against him. In and, and, and Acts um, 26, verses 1 um, and on, he says, um, King Agrippa um, says to Paul, he says, you have permission to speak for yourself. So then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And he, he, he says to King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our own, our own religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme, and in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And it's interesting that that Paul would bring up his own testimony as a defense. Because it's one thing to say, um, as many of the Jewish background believers in those days would claim that Jesus is a Messiah and and preach Jesus and preach the gospel and and, and use um, the claims of Jesus as a defense. But it's a whole another thing to say, hey, look, look at my former life. Look at who I was before. Look at um, how I was, my teaching, my pedigree, my heritage, the things I did, the acts I did, um, where I went to persecute the church. I, I, was, I was trying to kill them. I was trying to kill them. I, I, was, I was going to different cities. I, I was taking great efforts to persecute them, to destroy the way. And so if I'm now preaching about the way and preaching about Christ Jesus and preaching about the gospel, then something must have happened. Because I was headed this way, and now I'm headed this way. And I was striving this way, and now I'm striving that way. And I tell you, it is by the will of God. Paul's conversion and and his commission is clearly by the will of God. And and you can see this that that even right after, in Acts chapter 9, right right after he was converted, what did he do? Right after he he was converted, he goes out and he starts preaching. Immediately. It was what? Three days. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, it says, um, I have the wrong page. Acts 9, verse 15, it says, But the Lord said to him, talking to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. What what a dramatic conversion and and, and immediate conviction that he must not only follow Jesus, but he must preach Jesus. And, And he went, it's almost like he went exactly back to the people who sent him. Now, he was sent by the Jews in Jerusalem, but he went straight to a synagogue. And certainly there were stories, and you could see there were stories about him. Did not he come here to persecute those? It's almost like we sent him. They didn't personally send him, but the Jews in the synagogues at Jerusalem sent him, and he went to the synagogue in Damascus and began preaching about Jesus. That's that's clearly an act of God. And and so we see the will of God clearly in in the life of of the Apostle Paul in his conversion and commission. But then then we also see it in Paul's proclamation and his persecution. That that he, he he stayed a little while in Damascus, but then when the persecution was starting to rise up against him, He was sent away, and 
he went to the apostles. He went to the apostles, and, and, and at first they, 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 were, they were worried, and, and rightfully so. They were worried about, you know, is he, is he just trying to gain inroads? Is, is he for real? Because it wasn't long ago he was persecuting us, and we know. Is, is he trying to gain entrance into our circle to, to get names and locations and houses so that, that he can take us all down? But Barnabas was willing to let him in. And, and immediately he, 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 tried, he, he tried to make sure he was on the right road. That, that he, he, he conversed with, with the apostles, with the leaders of the church, with, with James and Peter and John, and, and just to make sure I'm preaching the right gospel, I'm doing the right thing, because I saw Jesus, and I must preach Jesus. And so am I doing the right thing? Am I preaching him the right way? And that took some humility. That took some humility to come to those that he was, in a sense, persecuting days and weeks before. But he did that. And he was affirmed by them. And then he was sent by them. And he went out. And he went out to Tarsus and went out to Asia Minor. And he went out and he was persecuted. He was persecuted by the Greeks and by Jews in other synagogues in Asia Minor and throughout the Greek-speaking world. He proclaimed the gospel and he was persecuted for it. And he suffered. Just as, as Jesus said. Just as Jesus said in Acts. He said, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul talks about this later on. When the, when the Corinthians are, and all the people are, are speaking bad about him and the false teachers, and they're harming the churches at, at Corinth, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he talks about how much he suffered for the sake of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 24 and on, he says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Why would Paul suffer like that? Why wouldn't he just continue his former life as a Pharisee. Or, or, or you know, e even in keeping with his conversion, why not just sit back and take it easy? Just, you know, be, be a lay person in the church and, and just serve with his giftings. No, he, he, was, he was converted by the will of God. He was commissioned by the will of God. He was called to preach by the will of God. And he was called to suffer by the will of God. For the sake of the gospel. But it wasn't just the people. It was in a sense. God himself. In 2 Corinthians 12. He talks about. His own discipline. From the Lord. He says. So to keep me from becoming conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. A thorn was given me in the flesh. It said it was given to him. This is a gift, Paul. <laughs> a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. Here's my gift to you, Paul. A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so we see that the the will of God is all over the Apostle Paul's life. We could see, you know, primarily before his conversion, you you could see a little bit of his own ambitions and, and, and you could suppose that a person, a Jew, would by their own thoughts and inclinations and desires, um, choose that career of being a, a, a Jewish priest, of being a, a leader of the Jews, of being a scholar, and to work with all his will to attain to that and to excel in that. But after his conversion, it's all by the will of God. From the point he was converted to the point he started preaching to the point he was, he was commissioned as an apostle, his proclamation in the churches and, and in the marketplaces, in the, the, the Greco-Roman world, his persecution, his discipline from the Lord, it's all by the will of God. Paul's imprisonment and his writing are by the will of God. That <clears throat> he is writing here to the Colossian church from prison. as he, he writes not only to the Colossian church, but he writes to... Um, the Philippian church, and he he writes to the um, church at Ephesus as well. Um, He's in prison. He's in a Roman prison shortly after his journey um, to Rome. And we can see in Acts chapter 20, Acts chapter 20, that it's also by the will of God that he's imprisoned. Acts chapter 20 and verses uh, 22 and following, he says, he said, and this is, he's talking to the Ephesian leaders before he goes to Jerusalem. And he says, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And so it's clear he knows. He knows the Holy Spirit is constraining him to go, and and yet the Holy Spirit is also telling him, by way of prophecy, that imprisonment and afflictions await him. And and the Ephesian elders, they're they're emotional about his leaving and his departure, but he he must go. And and even later, there's the the prophet Agabus that tells him that he will be um, tied up and bound. And he will be in prison, but yet he still must go. He must go because God is constraining him and God is sending him. And therefore, it's, it's by God's will. And we see this later in Acts chapter 27. Acts chapter 27, in verse 22 to 25, as they're um, in the storm and that ship is being tossed about, and they're about to um, become shipwreck. He says in verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So we see that his imprisonment, his conversion and commission is by the will of God, his proclamation and persecution to all the churches and by the false teachers and and the the Greeks and the Jews is by the will of God. And, And now his imprisonment is by the will of God. 
He's, he's going to testify before Caesar. And God is going to continue to use him. And he knows this. Paul knows this, so he's willing to face it. He's willing to go. He's willing to accept what God has planned for him. And even while he's in prison, he testifies to this. In Philippians chapter 1, he testifies to this. He's thankful for his imprisonment. And keep in mind that he's probably writing all these letters at the same time. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, from prison at the same time. And so he writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. To the Philippian church, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial, imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. From beginning to end, Paul saw this was all by the will of God, and, and, and it, it's interesting. I, I assume that there must have been um, some sort of excitement, of adventure. What's next, Lord? Where next? Does you know, imprisonment and persecution uh, await me there? But also, with that, because he knew that that, that was the cost of ministry. That, that came with the territory. And so on the positive which is what he probably thought of most, is who's going to receive the gospel? Who's going to be saved? Who's going to repent? Who's going to believe? What, what church will be built here in this city? Who will be impacted by these writings, by my imprisonment? For God causes all things to work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. But, this raises, this raises some issues concerning the will of God because um, Paul experienced a great amount of evil. And so we got to ask the question, were all these evil acts done by the will of God? You know, there, there's this, this problem that a, a lot of, usually unbelievers bring it up, they call it the problem of evil. Well, that's only a problem if you don't believe in God. Because if you don't believe in God, there's no good or you have no basis for good or evil. But God causes all things to work together for good. And, and theologians and, and pastors and they, they they say that there's these two wills of God. And they're not con contrary or contradictory, but they, they just it's all encompassing, but they put it into two categories the decretive will of God, or what he decrees, and the preceptive will of God, or, or what is according to his precepts. Um, and there, there's a theologian, he, he writes, Walter L. Elwell, in the Evangelical Dictionary of, of the Bible, he writes this. He writes, There is unquestionably a great mystery here as to how a holy God who cannot even look upon evil, as Habakkuk 1.13 says, can work his will through evil. But that he does is the clear teaching of Scripture. If something could get outside the will of God, it would become a God unto itself and a rival to God. 
Such can never be the case. God alone is God, and there is no other. And that's a simple but profound statement, that God alone is God. That God is God, and he does all that he pleases. So that everything that happens on earth, it, it doesn't take him by surprise. That he, he either ordains it, and in a sense he does ordain all things to come to pass, but he is not the author of evil. But is he powerless to stop it? He allows it to happen. Even though his precepts and his laws clearly say that we are to do good, that we are to love one another, that we are to obey his laws, which are good, that every word of the Lord is good and upright and true. The Apostle Paul himself wrote that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. So even all the evil acts that Paul did beforehand because he, he murdered Christians. He persecuted the church. And, and that convicted him. That, that haunted his conscience. But he found comfort in the fact that God is sovereign and that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. That he wrote in Ephesians 1, but he also, in Romans 8.28, that he knew that for those who love God, and all, that all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. He knew that God would somehow, in his, his sovereign orchestration of all the events in human history, would work this out for good. Solomon wrote in Proverbs 16.4, he said, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Even the wicked, even Hitler and Stalin and the most evil people throughout the history of the world, God has made for the day of trouble. The troubles that we face, but also the judgment that he will be glorified in judging the wicked. And it's God's prerogative to determine how he will be glorified. That's not our prerogative. That's his prerogative. And he will be glorified one way or the other. He will be glorified by saving sinners or he will be glorified by damning sinners. But it's up to him to decide. And that's where Paul found his comfort as he looks back on his life and he sees the will of God that it's clearly by the will of God that he was called to be an apostle. We see this in Job. That God used that evil to teach us how to suffer. To teach us that he's in control. To teach us that Satan can't destroy a saint's faith. And to teach Satan that he can't destroy a saint's faith. But we see this more clearly, this, this will of God that was used against Paul and that Paul committed, that it was allowed by God and it was used by him for the greater good. We, we see this even more clearly in, in the second aspect concerning the will of God in the church at Colossae. So we saw the first aspect, the will of God in the Apostle Paul. Now we see the will of God and the proclamation of the gospel. The will of God and the proclamation of, God, of the gospel. Which brings us back to that second phrase which Paul used so often in his greetings. Grace to you and peace from God the Father. Paul, Paul knew that his life, his time as a Jew, his time persecuting the church, his conversion, his commission was all being used by the will of God to proclaim the gospel for the greater good of the gospel going out. And he, he says this to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 to 11, he says to them, he says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, 
but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul saw that it wasn't just his life that was by the will of God, but it was the proclamation of the gospel. It was the gospel ministry that he was being used for that was by the will of God because even he had to say, it was the grace of God that is with me. And he said at the end of the day, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Paul saw that he was simply a tool. He was simply a tool in the hands of a mighty God to be used to save other sinners. So that he, he, the will of God was so much throughout his whole life that he could say that I have no room for boasting. I have no room to say that I'm doing anything. This is all of God. Look at my life. There's no other answer to my life except God. That He's done a work in me and through me and for the sake of His people. And so there's no boasting. Even though I've done great things, it was God who did it through me. Grace and peace. Grace and peace came to me and it issued out through me for the sake of God's people. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 5 explaining the depths of the gospel and how we are are justified, how we are declared um, forgiven and cleared by God's law. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In this term he uses here, peace. Paul being a Jew, in the Greek it's Irene, but being a Jew, in the Hebrew language, the term for peace is is shalom, shalom, which in our English and in our American understanding of that term peace, for the most part, we think of peace as an end of hostilities. Like we see two nations that are at war with one another and there's a peace accord and so the hostilities end. Or we see two people fighting and they're angry at one another and then they reconcile and they have peace and that's fine. There's no more hostility. But shalom means so much more. So much more. It not only means peace, but it means prosperity. It's not that the two nations stopped warring with one another. But the two nations became allies. They became friends. They became partners in trade. They opened their borders to one another. It's that the, the, the two people who were fighting with one another became friends. And so what he's saying is that we who were once enemies of God have become friends of God, by God. That peace, that shalom that came to him who thought, he he thought he was on God's plan. He thought he was doing everything for God. Even Jesus said that the day will come when those who persecute you will think they are offering service to God. And this was the Apostle Paul. But God not only made peace with him and forgave him, but he used him as an instrument. As an instrument of grace. That his grace would extend through him. In we see this is the will of God. This is the will of God from the beginning. You know, we talk about the attributes of God and it's right and good to learn about the attributes of God and who God is because that's who we worship. And throughout the Bible, we can see that God is love. He is mercy. He is grace. He's holy, holy, holy. He's just. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresence present, everywhere. He's omniscient, all-knowing. All these things about God. But 
truly the attributes of God are fully displayed at one point in history, at one place, and that's in the gospel. That's in the cross of Christ. As many of my professors and and other pastors have said, all mysteries meet at the cross. All mysteries meet at the cross. And all of God's attributes are displayed in the cross of Christ. All his perfections are put on full display in the gospel. Where we see the justice and the holiness of God, that he will not wink at sin, that he will bring every act into judgment, that he will uh, judge us for every careless word, every bitter thought, every evil deed. And he, we also see his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. We see his justice. Because it's not, he, he can't just forgive us. Somebody has to pay that penalty. And only an eternal God could pay that penalty. Only Jesus Christ could be that perfect sacrifice to bear the wrath of God that we deserve for all eternity. Only an eternal being, only God could offer up that sacrifice. And so, in the cross of Jesus Christ, we see the power of God, we see the holiness of God, the justice of God, we see the mercy of God, the love of God, the forgiveness of God, His faithfulness, His, His faithfulness and His patience with us. But we also see the providence of God. That, that the, the cross of Christ, Calvary, the life of Jesus Christ, and all the, the events in His life, all the experiences came about at the perfect time. As Paul would write to the Galatians, he, he said in Galatians 4, verses 4 to 5, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. You know, when Jesus came into the world, the Roman Empire was probably at its height in power. And all the Jews, they had all these promises that Messiah would come and would reign. And they wondered, how could this happen? And they wondered when it would happen. They believed the promises, but they didn't understand how or why or when. And they didn't fully understand the promises either. But it was imperfection that, that Christ would be born of a virgin, virgin, as is prophesied. That he would be born at such a, a lowly estate. And it was, it was such that, you know, the, the decree of Caesar brought about the census, which caused Jesus, who was living in Nazareth, to come down to Bethlehem according to prophecy, so he would be born in Bethlehem as the son of David. And, and everything, everything worked out according to the perfect planning and timing of God. Because that was God's will. And, and, and we see this in, in Paul's life. We see this in the proclamation of the gospel. We see it in the lives of the disciples that would go out and, and would proclaim the gospel and plant churches. So we see the will of God in the proclamation of the gospel, in the perfections of the gospel. We see it in the power of the gospel to convert sinners like Paul, to commission him, to send him, to make him do a 180, to change him drastically. We see that in our own lives, to change us drastically. We, we, we see the will of God in the propagation of the gospel, that, that 12 for the most part, fishermen, uneducated men, turned the world upside down. That they went forth and they proclaimed this gospel, and the gospel spread to all the nations. And particularly, even Paul, a, a zealous Jew that um, certainly thought that Jews were um, privileged above Gentiles, he was sent to the Gentile nations. And, and the gospel spread like wildfire. And this was the will of God. 
In Matthew 28, the, the, the Great Commission, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But, you know, this charge to go to all the nations, to bring the gospel to all the nations, to bring the grace of God and the peace of God to all peoples, it didn't start with Jesus in, in, in Matthew 28. You go all the way back to Isaiah. It was always God's plan to, to save the world, to, to redeem the world, to call people from out of the world, from all nations. In Isaiah 49, it says, 49 verse 6, it says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, talking about Jesus, the Messiah, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. The propagation of the gospel was by God's will to go to the nations, that his name would be known. Later in Isaiah, it says it at the end, in chapter 66, verse 18, it says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory, and I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pole, and Lud, to draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. Why? That the knowledge of the God would cover the earth. That he would save people from all nations. That he would have worshipers from all nations all around the world. That the knowledge of God would cover the earth. As Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And so we see that this is the will of God, and, and we see it clearly through the life of Paul. We see his life is by the will of God. We see the, the proclamation is of the gospel is by the will of God, that the planning of churches in different nations and the, the gathering of peoples from all nations is by the will of God. But this will of God is carried about out by the church. Uh, the third point, that the will of God is carried out by the church of Jesus Christ. The will of God in the church of Jesus Christ. That he would establish his church to do this. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and see this. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> this is... From before the foundation of the world, God had his plan. And as I read this, verses 2 to 13, I want you to pay special attention to the pronouns and who is doing the actions here. Look at the pronouns and who's doing the actions. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul writing this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, which with, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him 
who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. From beginning to end, everything is by the will of God. It's by the will of the Father. It's by the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said his, his food is to do the will of the Father. It's by the will of the Holy Spirit. It's by the will of, the, of God and that He would use the church of Jesus Christ to propagate His gospel and use people like Paul to spread it throughout the nations and throughout the world. And so we see the will of God in the church of Jesus Christ in the establishment of His church. We see it in the life of His church. It's in, in Colossians that, that Paul writes to the Colossians, telling them um, how they ought to live and, and, and strengthening them in their trials, that, that he proclaims him, that we are to proclaim Christ. Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. The will of God in the church of Jesus Christ is that Christ would be exalted, that he would be displayed, that his gospel would go forth, that we would proclaim him, that we would live for him in a manner which is worthy of his calling, that we would be Christ-like, and that our focus, the focus of his church, would be on Jesus Christ. Colossians 3. Verses 1 to 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ is the reason for all things. For his church is to be our life, is to be lived in a manner which is Christ-like for Christ's glory. It's our focus of his church. Jesus Christ is everything in our lives as Christians and, and in the life of church. And it is God's will that he be glorified and exalted above everything. And it's by his will, it's by the will of God that we do that. But Paul begins this passage in Colossians 3, 1 to 3, by saying, if then. If then, meaning that you can only seek the things above and set your minds on the things above and glorify Christ and live according to the will of God if you have been raised with him. It's almost like a past tense, having been raised with him. Now, we're not raised up with him now, but as Christ died and was buried and was raised, as Paul said, that, that we will also be raised with him. There, there was a sense that in his death, burial, and resurrection, we were united with him through the gospel. And, and that happens only through repentance and faith in Christ. That we are called to repent and believe in the gospel. We are called to proclaim the gospel and live according to the gospel. And all for the glory of Christ. So... The question is, if then, have you been raised? Have you been raised? And if you have been raised, are you seeking him? Are you seeking to live according to his will? As Paul could say, that everything was by the will of God. And there is a sense that there is that secret will, as we talked about, that decreed will, that providentially we see things happening. But his preceptive will, that we are called to obey his precepts and commands and follow him. And he has that command in the gospel, in the gospel to repent and believe. And so if you have not done that, I would charge you to don't waste another day. Repent and believe upon the gospel and follow him. And for those of us who have, we remember his sacrifice. We remember his death, that 
He took on human flesh to be made a sacrifice for sinners, to be made a sacrifice for us, that he had to become man so that his body would be broken for us. And so we are about to celebrate that, that he took on human flesh to bear the weight of our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that there was real blood that was shed on our behalf, that, that as the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. But he has shed our blood, and so he calls us as believers to celebrate that time. And if you are a believer, if you have repented and believed in Jesus Christ, you're welcome to celebrate this table with us. You're welcome to celebrate his death, burial, and resurrection. This is a memorial celebration. There's nothing, this doesn't save you. There's nothing special about the bread or the juice. It's a memorial of what Christ has done on our behalf. And Paul writes to the Corinthians that, we're not to eat it in an unworthy manner, meaning that we are not to eat it if there's flagrant sin in our lives. Now, as I said at the beginning of the service, um, there is a sense we need to confess our sins, and there is a sense that there are many sins that we are unaware of at the thought and attitude level. But we do not eat the bread and drink the cup if there's open, flagrant Sins that are clear and other people can see that. We confess those sins. But if you have confessed those sins and made reconciliation with those you've sinned against, then you're welcome to eat and partake in the supper if you are a believer. So I'd like to call the men forward to prepare for our time as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And I would ask that you would prepare your hearts and minds um, to celebrate the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This body is that this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Um, deacons, you can um, call up. And if you are in right standing, you may take and partake. Paul comments, he said, Jesus on the night that he was betrayed said to his disciples, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so as we follow the Lord's commands, let's take and eat the bread together. And just for me personally, um, 
Most of the times when I take communion and I eat the bread and there's that crunch, it reminds me of that verse that it pleased the Lord to crush him. And he was crushed on our behalf. And as he said, the writer of Hebrews said, sacrifice and burnt offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And that body was crushed for us. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. His blood was poured out for our sake. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it is a time of remembrance. And it is a time of looking back to the past and His sacrifice for us. But it's also a time of looking to the future. Because He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And Jesus said, I... I will not drink this again until I come in my kingdom. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we look back to His sacrifice on our behalf, but we also look forward to His return to make all things new, to redeem not only us, His people, and His church, but to redeem all of creation. And one day He is coming, and He is coming soon. But until that day... We await his return, and we live faithfully. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, and for the reminder that you do all things according to the counsel of your will, and that your will is good, and right, and upright, and true, and that you have called us according to your will, and you have established your church according to your will. And you, your gospel has gone out according to your will, and it has borne fruit fruit in our lives. And so, Lord, as we go from here, help us to live lives worthy of your name, worthy of the calling that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.